All right, well, good morning. Welcome once again to Christian Fellowship. Thank you for being here. Thank you for choosing to worship with us this morning as we get going. Uh, I'd like to spend a, send a special thank you out uh, to someone in our church who does a lot with very little recognition. She gets here early every Sunday, um, makes coffee, puts out pastries. Uh, Miss Renate um, does so much for us, keeps us fed, keep us, keeps us caffeinated, uh, but also helps out with cleaning and she, she does a lot. She gives a lot of her time and energy to be here. Um, so thank you very much, Renate, for everything that you do for us. Um, this morning, we're going to be in Philippians 4 in our Where's the Joy series. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Philippians 4. Um, while you're doing that, in the last year or so, many of you probably know this, but in the last year or so, a musical has become one of the most popular things, has really swept the nation. Um, Obviously, I'm talking about the musical Hamilton. It tells the story of Alexander Hamilton, who was the first secretary of the treasury, and it's everywhere. It won, like, every award it could possibly win. Um, there's a mixtape out. The soundtrack has a mixtape. That's how popular this thing has become. And it's become popular because, um, really, it, it takes... It's mostly hip-hop and rap. Um, so it takes things like what was a stuffy cabinet meeting and turns it into a rap battle. I've listened to this soundtrack for this musical just a lot, probably more times than I'd like to admit. Um, and there's a song in the show called Satisfied. The, the title of the song is Satisfied. And the, the song is sung by uh, Alexander Hamilton and his, uh, who would become his sister-in-law, Angelica. And the, both of them, uh, in the story of Hamilton in his life, have uh, a pretty deep connection and basically in this song, they're singing to one another and they are explaining that to each other and about themselves, they're talking about being satisfied. Both of them say to the other, you're never going to be satisfied. You are not the kind of person who will ever be satisfied and content with what you have. Now that's a lot of who Hamilton was. He was constantly trying to improve his life constantly trying to improve his place in life, trying to leave this great legacy, trying to do all he could to improve his name. And in doing so, he made a lot of enemies and ended up dying in a duel. Being content with your status, with your place in life, this is a persistent and sometimes overwhelming battle that we all face. In a world that says new is always better, how in the world are we supposed to learn how to be content with what we have? How do we learn to be content with who God has called us to be? That's what we're going to look at this morning. I'm going to pray and then we're going to read Philippians 4. Please join me in prayer. God, we come this morning to you seeking rest. God, we come seeking comfort. Really, we come seeking you. As we enter this time of Advent, this season of waiting, we do so waiting anxiously, expectantly, desiring to see you come and put an end to the darkness in this world. God, when I think of darkness, I think of our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world who are being captured and killed for their faith. Lord, we pray that you bring relief to their burdens, relief to their persecution. Lord, we can lift up these prayers to you this morning. We can come here and 
go before you boldly this morning because we know that you care. We know that you hear us and are paying attention. Lord, as I preach this morning, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. All right, so we're going to be in Philippians 4. I'm going to pick it up in verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I want to just jump right into verse 13 here. Verse 13, you know, as we've gone through the book of Philippians, um, I've said, you know, we've pointed out these different verses that are pretty popular, right? Verses that um, end up on t-shirts and coffee mugs. And probably no verse in all of Philippians, maybe in a lot of, you can take the whole Bible into consideration, it's probably still a top five. Uh, no verse is, is all over the place like Philippians 4.13, some of you have it memorized, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's everywhere, right? It's the verse that you see on marathon runners. They have it written on their arms. Tim Tebow, when he played football, used to have it on his eye paint. Philippians 4.13 is everywhere. It is the Superman verse. It is the verse that says, I can conquer anything. I can do anything. And I want to talk about that for a second. Because this verse is not the Superman verse that we've made it out to be. But before we talk about that, I want to actually, let's just, let's just do this. Let's take it out of context like we actually normally do. Let's take this verse out of context. Does it actually work? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Does that actually work? If I challenged Usain Bolt to a foot race, because I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And we lined up. When that gun goes off, what's going to happen? Dude is going to smoke me. Not even close. If I clear off the communion table right here and I challenge Dave Rico to an arm wrestling contest. Because I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Again, not even close. Have you seen Dave Rico's arms? It's coming up on finals week. And I know our students think that sometimes you can walk into a test without studying, without really preparing, because I can do all things through him who strengthens me and pass this test. That's not what's going to happen. Just because you are a Christian does not make you faster, smarter, or stronger than the next guy. But that's how we use this verse, isn't it? We've turned this verse into a think positive and you'll get what you want kind of thing. You see, when we take this verse out of context, we take what is deep and profound and life-changing and we cheapen it. We cannot read verse 13 without verses 11 and 12. And when we do that, we realize this verse is not about being the best. This verse is about being content. It's about being content in whatever situation, whatever circumstance you find yourself in, in every situation, being content. Being content is a choice. 
We have a choice. Do we choose to be content or do we choose to be discontent? One is much easier than the other, and because of that, all too often we choose to be discontent. And so I want to talk about the difference between these two state of minds, these two places we too often dwell in. And so let's start with discontent, because again, it's really a lot easier to be discontent in this world than it is to find contentment. What does it mean to be discontent? Really, when you strip it down, when you boil it down, discontentment means I don't trust God. It means I don't trust what he has said. And we can see this contrast between contentment and discontent beautifully laid out for us in Genesis 2 and 3. In Genesis 2, it's this perfect picture of what it means to be content. Man was created. Man and woman are created and they live completely trusting God. Adam and Eve knew nothing other than what God had told them. All the relationships in creation were perfect. Man and woman, man and God, man and work. We were created for work and it was good and fruitful and easy. Man lived in complete contentment. God said, look, just trust me. I will take care of you. And here's the one rule. There's one tree you can't eat of the fruit of. Just don't do that and I will take care of you. Just trust me. And we see everything is perfect and good. And then you keep reading and you get to Genesis 3. And it shows us how discontentment screws everything up. Satan puts into their minds this idea that God was withholding something from them. That they could have more, that they didn't need to trust God. In fact, they got convinced that they would be better off on their own. And so Adam and Eve eat of the fruit of the tree they were not supposed to. They didn't trust God. They weren't content to live within the environment God had provided. They weren't content to live as God had intended. And through their rebellion and discontent, sin enters the world and discontentment flows throughout creation, wreaking havoc everywhere it goes. Because discontentment by its nature leads to rebellion. Adam and Eve's rebellion brought sin into the world, and so we today are part of that rebellion. That's what sin is. Sin is rebellion against God. He says, do it my way, I have what is best for you, and we choose to do it our own way. To act on our own accord. To say, no, God, I can do it my own way, and so we rebel. God, I want to do it better. I think I know best and can live a better life than what God has offered me. I'm not content to live your way, God. I want to live my way. Discontentment leads to rebellion. Discontentment leads to rebellion and it destroys relationship. Man and God's relationship is severed and is now marked by rebellion. At one point, Adam and Eve would walk in the garden with God. There was this deep connection there, and now it is severed and broken and marked by rebellion. Man and woman's relationship, Adam and Eve, lived free, in love, content, and naked in the garden, and then they sin, and through their discontentment, sin enters the world, and now what was a perfect relationship is now marked by guilt and shame. They run and hide from each other. 
Even man's relationship with work is broken and hard, isn't it? Nobody's excited about that alarm clock going off tomorrow morning because work is hard. Discontentment leads to rebellion. It destroys relationships and it distorts reality. You see, when we become discontent with where God has brought us, we begin to daydream, right? And fantasize about this mythical alternate universe we create in our minds. If only I had made this choice different. If only I had a better house, a better car, a different spouse, a better job, then, then I'd be happy. Then I'd be content. But you see, when we begin thinking this way, we lose sight of the blessings God has provided for us. We stop enjoying the things God has given us because we are convinced there's something better to be had. But you can look at scripture. You can look at men like Solomon, the wisest, richest man who ever lived, who at the end of the day says, all of this stuff of this world is nothing. You can look at history. The different leaders and different dictators who conquered and conquered and conquered, constantly amassing wealth and amassing land and amassing these people and were never satisfied. We can look at our own desires for the new and the shiny, right? Especially this time of year. That's what marketing is is really hammering on. You might have a phone and it might work fine, but we have a new and shiny phone. We can see it in history. We can see it in scripture. We can see it in ourselves. And if we allow ourselves to live in this world of constant discontentment, we will never be satisfied with anything. But Paul said in verse 12, did you catch it? He knows the secret to being content. So what is contentment? The working definition I have, I read a bunch of different stuff getting ready for this sermon, and a lot of people a lot smarter than me had a lot of different definitions of contentment. The one I've kind of amassed together is is this. Contentment is being satisfied by God's provision and direction in my life. Contentment is being satisfied by God's provision and direction in my life. What that means is God will always provide all that you need for your circumstances. And his direction will always lead to his glory and what is best for you. And you see, Paul gives us some guidance on what living this content life looks like. He kind of lays out some do's and don'ts of what what it means to be content. One of the things he says in this passage is that contentment must be nurtured. It must be learned. We don't just wake up one day and we are content with all that we have. In verses 11 and 12, he says it twice. He says, I have learned. In verse 11, he says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And then verse 12 in the second half, he says, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Contentment doesn't come naturally. It must be pursued. It must be studied and it must be learned. It is an everyday, lifelong process. It's an everyday decision to be satisfied by God, to trust Him And so if contentment is found in being satisfied by God, 
That means that contentment, this everyday decision, it is an everyday decision to pursue God, to spend time with Him, to know Him deeper. And contentment is not about having a warped mindset. This word for contentment that Paul uses has to do with self-sufficiency. And there was a belief amongst the Stoics, they would say, well, the way to be content, the way to be self-sufficient is to just disconnect ourselves from all emotion. Never get happy, never get sad, just be in constant neutral all the time. And then you will never have to worry about the ups and downs of life. But that's not what contentment means. We don't have to remove all feeling and emotion from ourselves. Paul cared deeply for these people. He just said in verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. We're going to talk about more about that next week. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. In other passages in Philippians, he said, You are my joy and my crown. I love you. You are my beloved Paul didn't remove his feelings and emotions from himself. And contentment doesn't mean that you have to like like suffering. Paul said in verse 12, he was brought low. He faced hunger. He faced need. Being content doesn't mean you suddenly like things that are hard or painful. Jesus wept over Lazarus. We're going to talk about it in a couple minutes, but he also, when Jesus was in the garden before going to the cross, he prayed, he anguished. Paul is in jail, locked up, chained to a guard. He was constantly being beaten up, run from town to town. He got shipwrecked, he got snake bitten. It doesn't mean that Paul enjoyed these things. Contentment doesn't mean you have to like suffering. It just means you aren't controlled by it. Contentment isn't about having a warped mindset, and it's not based on our current situation. It's not found in money or power. See, because here's the truth of the situation. For most of us, the struggle for contentment is wrapped in looking at what we have and wanting what is better, wanting what is more. But the message Paul is sharing here isn't about that. Paul says he has found the secret to being content no matter what the situation. Jail, beatings, chased out of town, shipwreck, snake biting, whatever. Paul isn't talking about how to be content living middle class or even like lower middle class. Paul is talking about being content when the worst of times, when the hardest of times will come. He says, I have learned in whatever situation." To be content in verse 11. So what's the secret, Paul? Well, like the answer to most questions in church, the secret is found in Christ. We see Jesus model for us what it means to be content. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus knew what was coming to him. He knew he was going to get arrested. He knew he was going to go through that kangaroo court. He knew about the beatings. He knew about the crown of thorns. He knew about the whips. He knew about everything. 
He knew the pain that was coming his way. And what does he do? He prays in the garden. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. In that moment, in that prayer, Jesus showed he trusted and was satisfied with God's provision and direction. He trusted that God's will, God's plan, is what is best. He was content to follow where God was leading him, regardless of the circumstances it would produce, because he knew it would lead to God's glory, and it was best for Christ. It was best for Christ because he would be resurrected, because he is exalted. In Christ, we see what contentment looks like. We see what contentment looks like in Christ, and we experience it through Christ. So if we see what it's modeled like in Christ, and we experience it through Christ, that means that being content is an exclusive right to Christians. Paul says it as much in verse 13, right? He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. If you don't have the him, you don't have the strength. Paul says, I can be content in any situation. I can deal with whatever this life may throw at me because it is Christ who strengthens me. In the Greek, it's this word, he strengthens me, is, is it's a moment right now in time and it will continue going forward. It has no end to it. He will continue to strengthen me. He's strengthening me now and he will continue to forever. True contentment, true satisfaction can only be found in Christ. Jesus himself said it over and over again while he was on earth. In John 4, he talks about giving a living water. That when you drink of it, you will never go thirsty again. A couple chapters later in John 6, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. What Jesus was saying there was, in the same satisfied, full way you feel after a meal, the same way we all felt Thursday night when you were done with Thanksgiving dinner, in that same satisfied, full way, that contentment, that fullness can only be found in Christ. He alone has the power to forgive sins, to take us from rebels to sons and daughters of God. And he does that by believing that Christ's death and resurrection not only pays the penalty for our sin and rebellion, but it gives us a new life if we will just trust him. If we will do that, he will show us what it means to be content to be satisfied by knowing that you have all that you need for your circumstances and that his direction in your life will not only bring him glory, but is what is best for you. See, there's a stark contrast between discontentment and being content. When we refuse to be content, we end up constantly struggling, constantly fighting, 
constantly working to try and find the next thing, or relationship, or role, or idea to fulfill us. But when we find our contentment in Christ, we find rest. Matthew eleven twenty eight says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You see, when we are never satisfied with having enough stuff, enough money, when we always need more and more, we become slaves to it. We become slaves to our finances and we are controlled by our bank accounts. But when we are satisfied by God's provision, we can be a generous people. Because we know that God will provide all we need for our circumstances. Acts 20 verse 35 says, Remember the words of the Lord Jesus, who he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. When we are constantly driven by our circumstances, we are blown back and forth in the wind, never stable, never secure. But when we are content in Christ, we are like an oak tree near a river with deep roots, sturdy and steadfast. Jeremiah 17, 7 and 8 says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green, and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Though the winds and storms of life may come, we can weather them all, because we are strengthened by God himself, and in him we can do all things. So if the secret to being content is found in a relationship with Christ, then my obvious application point to you this morning is get into a relationship with Christ. He wants to know he wants you to know him. He has rest waiting for you. Contentment waiting for you, truth and love and grace waiting for you. If you will just trust him, if you will just believe that, yeah, you are a sinner and rebel in desperate need of a savior, and that Jesus is that savior, his death pays the penalty for your rebellion so that you can have a new life, a new identity found in Christ. That your new life can start right now, today, in this moment. He wants you to know him. He wants you to find contentment. And if you already know Christ, amen and amen. But do not stop seeking to know him more and more because there is a deeper relationship to be had. There is more of Christ to be known. Paul says here that the secret to contentment is a relationship with Christ. But he also has said in this same letter that his desire is to know Christ more and more, deeper and deeper still. Because you see, this is the one place, this is the only place in your life where it's okay to be discontent. To not be satisfied, but to always be longing to know God deeper. 
to always be longing to know God more because the deeper we know Christ, the more we seek after him, the more our contentment in life is nourished. The more we seek after Christ, the easier it will be to say, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Let's pray.